Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Joining me today is Jason Barnwell. Jason is an Associate General Counsel in Microsoft's Corporate, External, and Legal Affairs Department, where he leads Microsoft's modern legal team. In addition, Jason has developed an active and vocal thought leadership role on the evolution of the profession. We had a great and wide-ranging conversation, and in it, among other things, Jason talks about the three things he brings to his work from his engineering training, his early experiences in big law, and the moment he understood the misalignment of incentives with efficiencies. And we had an interesting conversation around the role of storytelling and change management. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure to be here and to chat. So Jason, you you write a lot. For those of you interested in following more about Jason's commentary on the legal industry and the legal ecosystem and his journey, you can follow his blog post sort of all over the place, particularly on Bill Henderson's legal evolution. I've written a lot there. Jason, in reading one of them, you referred to yourself as an accidental T-shaped lawyer. And I'm I'm fascinated by that description, both the accidental, I suspect our listeners will know what T-shaped lawyer means. But what did you mean by that description? Oh, I'd say uh, accidental because it certainly was not by design. But the the thing that's so uh, interesting that I observe is when you really look at kind of the future shape of what you're seeing with the combinatorial skill sets that are really beneficial for building the future of our practice. It is the combination of what I would call critical thinking. So if you think it's, it's kind of the vertical on the T, going really deep on some type of subject matter, being able to, to really be uh, an exceptional, uh, you know, kind of conventional legal professional. But then you've got the top of the T, which is in many instances focused on systems thinking. And at the beginning of my career, you know, I, I didn't really think about trying to bring those two things together. It was just a, a happy outcome of the fact that my first primary training is as an engineer. And when you go to engineering school, you learn some, some things that are really helpful. So the, one of my kind of standard observations about engineering school upon reflection is it really teaches you three things. So the first is big problems can be broken into small problems. And big problems are, are often really daunting and hard to deal with. But small problems, you know, those, those are addressable. And second, there's an instruction manual for almost everything. And so if you're willing to go look for it, you know, it may look like an actual instruction manual, but in many instances, it might be a YouTube video or some other place where, where knowledge has been stored by somebody who's, who's trod that path before you. you, you can find that. And then the third is the quality of instruction that you may receive in formal circumstances may be lacking. And so you're probably just going to have to go teach yourself. But if you if you bring that together with really some of the more formal systems uh, thinking that you learn, uh, so for example, I'm a my formal training is as a mechanical engineer, so we learned about things like the Toyota production system and and all of the the ways that you think you bring process refinement into creating really consistent excellent outcomes. That ends up being a lot of the inputs that go on the top of the T. And I'd love to tell you that I had this grand design of oh I was going to go to engineering school. And then, you know, I, I was going to like bring that together with the critical thinking skills of law school. And it was going to be this, this happy melding. 
but that would be a lie. I just kind of got lucky that these things uh, can be chocolate and peanut butter and, and you can get some some useful outcomes out of them. What caused you to move to law school? You went to engineering, went to MIT, if I recall correctly. So you got a, you got a great education. Did you practice as a mechanical engineer for a while before then going to law school? And what, what triggered the desire to move into law? So I have never actually been paid to be a mechanical engineer. So I did work in industry for a half decade before going to law school, but that was as a software engineer. And I am a self-taught software engineer, which means I'm probably not a very good software engineer. But, you know, I've, I've made a few things. The short answer to your question is I sold a guy a pair of shoes. Uh, so after my first year at engineering school, I went back home for a few weeks and I went back to my old job to earn a little bit of money. And I ended up selling uh, a gentleman, I believe it was the Pete Sampras Air Max, light blue colorway. I think it was $129.99, <laughs> a beautiful shoe. And it was this gentleman who uh, was really nice and generous with his time. So we, we ended up just having a chat. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just back for the summer. He's like, oh, what, what's up? I'm like, oh, I'm in engineering school. He's like, oh, I was an engineer. I'm like, what do you, was an engineer? What does that mean? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm an attorney now. I'm like, well, how does that work? Because I, I didn't have any conception that you, you, there was a path for that. He said, yeah, I'm an intellectual property attorney. Intellectual property? What, what is that? And so this very nice person took 10 minutes of his life and he explained his journey and what he did on a day-to-day -day basis. And it sounded utterly fascinating. Like just the concepts. I'm like, oh, like that's a thing that you can, like an idea is a thing that you can protect, protect and monetize. And oh, wow. And it, and it just opened my mind. And so I ended up going back to school and taking a class offered by the management school on intellectual property. And I was like, wow, this is really like compelling and captivating stuff. And so then I ended up landing an internship at the Patent and Trademark Office as an examining intern. And it, it, Really, like it lit the the fire that ultimately was like, oh, I, I I think I can go do something with that, and so I decided I would go get some experience in the world, and then I would ultimately go uh, back to law school. I also played around with the idea of uh, business school, but ultimately it was the concepts of intellectual property that pulled me into the realm of law. And so it's because I sold a guy a pair of shoes. <laughs> these these moments are amazing how they have an impact on people's lives and careers, aren't they? Guy comes in and buys a pair of shoes, and he's an intellectual property lawyer. And the next thing you know, you're on this path. So true. So true. Amazing. What did you do after law school? I know so, you went and worked in private practice for a while. I did. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of the lead up on, on how this played out. So I went to law school presuming I would be an intellectual property litigator. And I did litigation work that first summer. And what I took away from it is, the way that litigators think about problem solving was probably not well aligned with how I think about problem solving. So I went back and I ultimately thought, well, I really think intellectual property is cool, but I think I need a, I need a way to apply this that isn't going to be patent prosecution because I don't think that's going to work for me. Oh, wait, when I was a software engineer at startups, I bet they had lawyers. And it seems like intellectual property and, and other kind of commercial aspects that were interesting to me are relevant for startups. So what if I became a startup lawyer? So I went back for the second year of law school and I completely retooled the curriculum and I, I loaded up on, I took corporate finance and accounting for lawyers and all kinds of other uh, things that would augment 
some of the the things I didn't pick up as an undergrad because I didn't really have much uh, in the the business or finance pedagogy coming coming out of undergrad. So I I went back and I really augmented that and I cross registered the business school on some things and ultimately I parlayed that into a second summer experience as a corporate uh, associate focused on startups and venture capital bath financing at a firm and I loved it and it it's. It is really quietly one of the most fun and interesting jobs that you'll find in our profession because you get to see the entire life cycle in one shot. Because as a startup lawyer, there were times I was carrying something like 40 clients. And so they are in every possible phase of the life cycle, whether it's creation, whether it's ramp up, whether it's financing, whether it's exits, whether, you know, wind down. And so it gives you this beautiful cross-sectional view of everything and all the issues. And the other really cool thing about startups is in many instances, they didn't know that I didn't know what I was doing. And so they would throw any <laughs> question at me. And so, you know, on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, you're getting this fabulous variety of issues and questions. And if you pick up the phone and take the call, you know, you can basically get this great kind of training in all kinds of stuff because they don't know to not ask you the questions. And ultimately, when you're early in your career, I think there's there's two things that you really need. A great set of like hard, interesting questions and a feedback mechanism that helps you basically test what you're doing so that your quality continues to improve. And I think that uh, the startup experience is just really wonderful in that regard because it has a nice mix of the variety of those weird things, but it also gives you a chance to really flex on, if we're honest, the process side too, because you end up running these really large deals. And I remember like very early on, this partner I worked for who she was, she was awesome. She's like, yeah, I'm going to my house out in the islands. And so you basically have about this much of my time before the boat, I'm going to be on the boat and I'm not going to have any connectivity. So you should probably get all your questions in then. And then like, you're, you're just going to handle it from there. And so I, I remember, uh, this is, this is a long time ago, but I remember like, I didn't have enough room on my whiteboard for all the issues. And so I had to start writing on the windows in my office to like, basically like track all the stuff. And people started walking by and they're like, Jason's gone crazy. Some like beautiful mind stuff is happening over there. And it's, it's not good, but it's when you get to actually own like these large transactions and own every part of them it really gives you the opportunity to understand like how the pieces fit together and to start thinking about how you can refine them and redesign them. And so that is a very long and rambling answer to your question, but that is how I got started in the practice. And it was just fabulous. From that description, it seems clear that you're drawing on some of those elements you were talking about, about engineering, big problems, breaking them down into small problems, sort of teaching yourself manuals. Uh, and I presume that's been a something you've done throughout your career is drawing on those skill sets and dynamics of the engineering profession and applying them to law. I try to. And uh, like anybody who looks at my LinkedIn profile, you'll see I, I can't keep a job at Microsoft, right? Like they keep moving me around to other and different stuff because I, I think one of the really amazing things about the experiences that we have in-house is there's just a lot of variety. And if you are willing to go learn and move yourself across the chasm of ignorance, 
with some, you know, thoughtful and, and intentional uh, approaches and, and, you know, asking for the right help, you really have a, a very rich internal marketplace of opportunity. You just have to be willing to be bad at your job for a certain amount of time <laughs> and, and get through it. But it's, that's, that's part of the fun. So yeah, no, it, but it is a process. It is. And that's the thing that I, I think we often don't embrace that moving yourself from I don't know what this is to, I have an inkling of what it is to, oh, I'm not completely dangerous to, oh, like I'm, I have something to contribute to, oh, I might actually be good at this. Like that's a process. It is a process. Uh, you, you tell this story about what triggered your desire to move from private practice into the corporate world about coming up with an idea to simplify the assembly of, if I'm I'm shortening the script, the assembly yeah. of documents. Maybe you could just retell that story again, but give us a context. You talk about it as being a mismatch between the way you were looking at the world and the way private practice, if I can generalize, was looking at the world. I think that's fair. And the story, and I'll try to be linear and brief, is we are running an M&A deal and we're doing the lead up to the closing process. So when you do these transactions, you have to solicit consents from the people who own the company to let the transaction go through, depending on the governance model. And as part of that, you have to disclose a lot of features uh, and details of the transaction so that that solicitation of consent is effective because people have to know what they're signing up for. And I was the most junior associate on the transaction and the way that we were assembling the consents, which if you look at it, it's basically a giant stack of paper of different types of artifacts, right? So it's the agreement and plan of merger and basically a distribution waterfall and like specific proceeds. And then it gets into a bunch of other, you know, lots of other artifacts. You know, it's a stack of paper that's probably somewhere between a half ream and a ream thick. Um, and these get FedExed out to, you know, the, the shareholders. And the way we were doing it was a bucket brigade, wherein there was a set of primary, uh, you know, documents that were then put onto a copy machine. And so we were making a, a copies of that and putting those into stacks. So now you're already having quality, you know, problems in as much as the, like the documents are just getting less readable. So I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. And then the way we were assembling them was we were doing a bucket brigade where you'd literally walk through the room and you'd have a person go and grab one of each and you'd build a stack and then you'd you know pull the, the effectively the specific uh, sheet for that uh, shareholder and then you'd drop it in a FedEx envelope and we'd have a whole literally a table of them and we'd have and that's what we were doing and so I went to one of uh, my colleagues and I said you know I'm pretty sure I can automate all of this like I I think literally I can do a mail merge and some Adobe script and I can send everything to that printer over there. And what we will get is not just a clean, you know, version of all the documents, because we're not doing copies of that first copy. Like, so the, the, the reading quality will be much better, but I'm pretty sure I can do a mail merge that would templatize and fill out the specific proceeds for the shareholders. So like, literally, we're just pulling them off the top, dropping them in and we're, and we're done. And we're not inhaling ozone you know, walking through this copy room, the, you know, the person, my colleague was like, well, well, you know, that's an interesting idea, but I, you know, I don't really trust that. And like, what happens if it, like, basically all the things that we are taught to do to say like, well, but what about this? And what about that? And I was like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. We can test this really quickly and they'll either all be right or they'll all be wrong. And they're like, yeah, I appreciate that. But like, we're good. And it wasn't until several weeks later that I saw the bill 
that I realized like, oh, well, the incentives here are not aligned for real efficiency. And I don't think anybody's being nefarious, to be clear. I, I just think it's, it's all like, you know, where does the gravity pull us, right? Like, wh where does it move us uh, in, within our preference set? It was then that I realized that the way that I wanted to produce value was maybe not aligned with that business model. And at that point, it became clear, like, I don't know that my long-term success works here because the way that I want to contribute and the way that I want to create value, my, my gravity is pulling me in a different direction. And so it was that point that I really started thinking about, well, what is a place where I could go where doing things a little bit differently and thinking about how we can apply technology to, to change how we work would be something that would be something we could walk downhill towards rather than uphill towards. And that steered some choices. Let's stick on that story for just that moment for just a bit, Jason, because there's, there's a number of elements that story, which I think resonate to anybody who's listening. They certainly resonate with me, which is the, well, what if these things happened to that lawyer heading towards, you know, it's, it's not enough just to know angels dance on the head of a pen, right? You got to know exactly how many and that they're not going to fall off. And as you say, the, the, the alignment of incentives and rewards in the building relationship between the law firm and the client and all those impediments to thinking differently about the delivery of legal services. It's been a number of years now, I presume, since that event. In your role, as you look out on the world of private law firms and the service delivery models, are you still seeing those variables come into play or are you, have you seen a change over the last number of years that is causing firms to be more innovative and more deliberative about how they're changing the legal services model? It is getting better. And I think it's getting better faster. So I have a lot of hope. But as you know so well, one of the biggest problems in our progress and the rate of transformation is not just the law firms. So it's interesting to examine the system of migration of how people come in-house, right? So most of the people that are my current colleagues and peers, they were trained in a law firm, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we, That's where we came from, yep. you know? And so one of the things that slows our progress is it's not just the supply side. It's that on the demand side, we have a lot of people who are comfortable with a certain way of working and that it reflects in their preference set. So one of the interesting things that we, we observe is that even when firms are like, okay, we heard you and we're ready to try things differently, we will actually have some friction on our side of the fence. And so we have to get people, people past that. And so I would love to just say like, oh, it's just the firms and they're, but like, I, I would say there is, there are challenges on both sides, but the change is, is starting to happen. And I think there's a few things that are catalyzing this. So one is just constraints. And as much as we do not have enough human attention to do all the work that is to be done. Like, and so as we start running into that constraint, it's causing people to think a little bit differently about how the work might be done. Another thing that we're starting to see is that the commodity technology that is available is crazy powerful. And you don't need an army of technologists to make certain things happen. Like, you know, the no code and low code automation that's happening 
that, that is, is coming online is really reducing the barrier to entry. And one of the biggest things that I am starting to see close up is the professionalization of corporate law management. So it used to be the case that I think, and again, I wasn't there when most of these things happened, but back in the day when you started to have corporate legal departments, they were basically a receiving socket for uh, law firm work. So you had a person who was often the outside counsel and at a certain you know, level of business maturity, the corporation or the organization that is consuming those services would say, well, I need somebody to, to shepherd this work. And what you saw was often the selection of people for their legal acumen. But I don't know that you always saw correlate uh, selection that looked for the business acumen and thinking about how the pieces fit together. And one of the things that I'm seeing in the modern GC set is really elite professional business management skills. Like you're starting to see that come online. And as part of that, they start developing a bench that increases their department's capabilities. So you're starting to see these, these functions come online in corporate legal that help them with you know, the operational aspects of how they procure and how they deliver uh, legal services to their organizations. And as that starts to grow and as the accountability continues to accrue to your GCs and your CLOs and for them to be seen as credible in the C-suite, they need to be bringing data with them. I think there is an inexorable you know, change path that is going to happen. And I believe that is accelerating. So that is a long way of saying, I wish we were further along. I do see real progress happening. And I have conviction around the fact that that is probably accelerating. And so I think a common refrain that you will hear from people is, I've been doing this for X number of decades, you know, X minus one decades ago, people told me the future was going to look different and people are still telling me that now. And why should I believe that the future will look different? And I would say that if you look at the characteristics of the system that are emerging now, I think that we will see material change a decade from now in large part because the constraints that have historically allowed for incremental improvement in what we do in both quality, volume, and, and, and speed will not keep up with the demand characteristics of, of businesses. And that is ultimately going to be a forcing function that causes change. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Uh, the other variable in there, and you sort of touched on it, is the emergence of alternative service providers in the industry, because they tend to be built differently from the ground up. They're not confronting those inherent cultural impediments that a longtime legal department or a, or a longtime law firm have you seen that as one of the variables in driving change over the last few years? Absolutely. And we are aggressively looking for opportunities to bring those organizations and their capabilities to more of our work. And I think the other thing that I'm starting to see is we, we often try to treat this as a binary classification, right? You've got law firms on one side, you might maybe have ALSPs on the other side. And I'm starting to see it as more of a continuum because we are seeing the firms start to make investment in captive ALSPs, in partnerships, because they're starting to realize like, okay, there is a, a basket of services that our customers want to buy. 
we either need to be able to fulfill more of that basket or have friendly, you know, business relationships with people who can we can partner with constructively to fill out the basket. Otherwise, we're going to start losing mindshare on these things and we're, we're going to lose access. And that ultimately dries up the work. The, one of the funniest things that I, I, you, you hear is when people come to us and they say, we want your bet the company, you know, legal work. And it's like, they're honestly, if, if you have a ton of bet the company legal work, that's not good. Like that is not something we should seek, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. I remember hearing some general counsel describe it at a, at a conference that goes, I found if I've got a bunch of bet the company legal work, I'm going to lose my job. Right, right. Like the, the goal is to run a tight, efficient business that, you know, is controlling risks by not getting yourself into places where you're constantly have to bet the company, right? You want to spend more time running the company. And so one of the things that's interesting to think about is historically, you know, there's been this kind of notion of, well, if I get more access to bet the company work, that ends up giving me access to more of the breadth work. And I'm not sure that's really the case. I, I think really, if you want to have a shot, getting the home run, it's probably a good idea to get some singles and some doubles in there too, so that you are, you know, your bats warm, right? Because one of the things that I observe is there's some of our uh, relationships where they're like, well, you know, you should really only call us when like these big things show up. It's like, yeah. And what's happening is they're losing the touch points that give them the, really the, the texture of what's actually going on in our business. And so then if you go to call them for, for help on some of these other things, the ramp up of context is very high. Whereas if you have an organization that you're walk, working with day in and day out, and they have facility with your issues, with your language, with your people, they, they have those relationships. In many instances, it may be easier to, to transition certain work to them. And so what's going to be interesting is as ALSPs, gain access to more of, you know, the lower complexity work that's at the bottom of the stack. Could it be the case that they end up being able to do some really special and interesting things that are higher in the stack because they're able to actually correlate signals across a bunch of different types of work? You know, rather than thinking about, well, let's be ready when things go wrong with, you know, elite legal talent. What if we could look at the bigger picture? And maybe start predicting, hey, that's going to be an issue down the road. Let's, let's correlate these things with like, hmm, when you see a lot of this, about three years later, if you're not thoughtful about managing that risk, it turns into that. What if we made those investments now rather than trying to pull all these cows back into the barn later? Let's try to, keep, let's try to fix the fence. And the thing that I'm wondering is, Will our partners in the future, if we work with them most effectively, will they be able to start giving us predictive analytics and curative motions that are not requiring these Herculean efforts on the backside because some you know, massive tort has happened or what have you? So I don't know, but it's just something I think about. It's interesting. I think that people miss the point where operational excellence and the ability to use data, the ability to provide insights from your current tranche work adds tremendous value to the consumer of those services. And if you're adding tremendous value, you're gonna expand your mind share among the client because something that may seem like a big deal the first time you encounter it, the second time you encounter it is not quite as unique. Third time is not quite as unique. And 
you begin to sort of look for those people that can handle or those organizations that can handle these things efficiently and effectively with insights. And that's that's where I think you can begin to make inroads. I think that's true. But going back to some some of the things you were poking at initially, one of our biggest challenges is we select for, train, recognize, reward, and promote people for their critical thinking skills. And, and that basically comes down to, this is why these things that look very similar are different. And so yes. they, will, they struggle to find these patterns because they're like, well, I understand these are like 95% different or 95% the same, but they're still 5% different. Like, okay, <laughs> what are we talking about? So I think you're right, but like, that's, that's why we need some, some different perspectives and some different skill sets and some different inputs into the conventional legal approach, which is critical. Like having a sharp lawyer knife is absolutely critical, but you need to combine that with some other things. Yeah. And I think the, uh, one of the things I think legal departments and law firms are learning is that point is that you need different viewpoints, you need different skill sets, you need different professions involved in looking at the particular solution. Because I think that it's not just legal problems, these are business problems that have a legal component to them. And unless you're viewing it as a business problem that needs to be solved with various lens, you're not doing the client a big favor. Okay, so now I need to flip this on you. So you were somebody who figured this out a long time ago. and you started bringing these different pieces online in your organization, which my naive view is that's very hard in law firms because just the, the governance structure doesn't make that easy. And so can you just give me a little bit of a sense of what was it that triggered that kind of realization of I need to build some new capacities for my organization to be successful? And, and how did you actually bring that online? It certainly is challenging. And you remember that I'm old enough now that we were starting doing this back in the mid-2000s before there was sort of a lot of the change drivers that are that are on now. And it struck me that if you begin to look at things as business problems, and what I was hearing from a number of our clients at the time was they were looking for partners to enhance their value. Some of the same dynamics that are going on today, looking for partners to enhance their value to the business and be part of the solution set for businesses. And they weren't just looking for the 100% accurate legal solution. They were looking for a more rounded solution. And so as we began to look at developing skills like project managers and process engineers and technologists, there was an initial tendency to say, well, we're lawyers, we can do everything, right? Well, yes, I understand that's what you think, but that's just, there There are allied professionals out there. And so we began to build out these skill sets with other people who are trained project managers or process engineers or technologists. But the the turning point for us always was, and we faced this resistance, you know, the, the non-lawyer component to it, right? And the whole skepticism that you refer to in some of your writings among, among lawyers. The change point for us was an incremental one, and it had to do with the receptivity of clients to multiple skill sets, where you would go into a pitch or a client meeting, and the client was turning to the technologist in the room or the project manager in the room, or the process engineer in the room, and the partner would come out and go, well, they didn't really want to hear that much from me, but Chris did a great job. I'm going to start bringing him more often. And so what we learned was that loop was critical. And as you say, 
not every client was interested in that because they're lawyers too, and they're trained in big law firms. So the change process took a lot longer than I naively thought it would. But so, you stick so, to it. Okay. So you, you just snuck something in though, that we need to poke at a little bit. So you noted that these allied professionals were in the room. And I observe that that doesn't happen enough and that we as clients and customers do not get systematic access to the portfolio of capabilities. So again, I'm going to ask a very pointed question. Like, how did you get people in your organization to start realizing the value of bringing these allied professionals literally and putting them in front of the clients and, and sharing the stage with these folks who were not lawyers? The process we followed is is not dissimilar to some of the descriptions you've given in some of your writings, Jason, about using storytelling as a powerful change management tool to start with small wins and talk about them and get the clients to talk about them and build credibility sort of, you talk about bricklayers and architects, and there's a certain bricklaying, com I know you think we ought to move more to architects and bricklaying, but there was a certain component of it. You're doing it brick by brick, but trying to tell the story around what the building is going to look like when you're finished and the success you're having doing it. And I know some of the key things for modern legal that you're working with, are you're doing the same things. You're talking about stories and you're talking about some of the cultural impediments. We've been trying to do the same thing. And that's why I know how challenging it is. I know how challenging it was for us. And I can imagine how challenging it is for you guys, even in a slightly different environment. It is, but I, you're giving people gold with what you just offered from, from, from my perspective, because the change management process, we, we often, like, there's many great models for it, but fundamentally, I think one of the things you're highlighting is that if the people that you seek to influence don't see themselves in the story, and they don't see why it is good for them and a thing that they should want to join, then why should we expect their engagement? At best, you will get compliance, right? But you will not get the activation of intrinsic motivation that causes them to meaningfully contribute and make the story their own and want to walk the path with you. And I suspect that this is part of the secret sauce that you applied that actually helped your organization invest meaningfully, where it was more than just the, the minimum bar of, I guess I will do this, but when people started walking with you. And I think if anybody who was seeking to drive transformation and change should be shameless in borrowing from your playbook. Well, they're welcome to it. We're an open book. How has that played out in your organization, the, the storytelling, the cultural components? Because that's the team you've got with modern legal, and you guys are known as one of the most innovative legal departments in the world. So how, how have you confronted those challenges and dealt with them? Well, I, I feel like we are a remedial version of what you have been trying to drive for a couple of decades, but I'll, I'll offer a little bit. So when we talk about our innovation program, there's a, a few different levels of it. So we, we have a great partnership with a central engineering team that builds enterprise systems. And they are fabulous partners and they, they really build the big machines that power what we do. But we also realized that we needed the ability to react quickly 
and where we found opportunities to go learn, we should build point solutions that teach us something that help us prototype quickly. And so uh, a while back, our general counsel was like, hey, you know, you're doing the operations thing, but does it really give you enough time to go explore? Right. Like, should we put you on a, like a recon unit where you can just go move quick? You can, <laughs> you can take, you know, you know like leave the infantry behind, uh, but like, you know, go be fast movers, see what you can learn. And I was like, wow, that's really an interesting idea. But as part of that conversation, you know, we, she's like, you know, but like the goal is to not actually leave everybody behind, but to bring them forward. So how, how can we do that? And it turns out that as we, we've been discussing, you know, to bring those two pieces together, to go explore the, the frontier, but to also create breadcrumbs that ultimately allow the, the settlers to come in behind, you need to tell a story, right? Here, I'm going to give away the secret. So my team is very small. There's just three of us. The roles that we have. So we have a storyteller and her job is fundamentally to access the communications mechanisms that we have internally. And fundamentally what she does is she makes heroes. We find mm -hmm. people who typify like the future state who are doing really interesting, impactful work who've, you know, we also love to find a somewhat dramatic arc, like somebody who's like struggling <laughs> with something like, you know, a little bit of drama helps, but it, fundamentally, does. it does, right? Like we're just human, yeah. but fundamentally what she does is she shines a light on people who are doing interesting work and are overcoming things. And it helps other people who are like, oh, well, that's my peer. Like that's somebody who, you know, in normal times sits down the hall from me or has problems that are like mine. And then people start to realize like, oh, this is relevant for me too. This is not that tribe over there. And so we literally have a, a, the role we call, we call her a storyteller. And, you know, she does a whole lot of other amazing things too. But the, the most powerful thing she does is she manufactures heroes systematically. And we also have another role on our team that we call a cultural systems engineer. And in addition to uh, running uh, really our, our, our solution, our point solution build process, she manages the, what I would say is the, the, the systematic skilling enterprise that we're, we're doing, where we're trying to get people skilled up on our low code and our no code uh, stacks. And so that, you know, the, the tools are literally in their hands. But the other thing that she does is she partners with a virtual team that cuts across all of our organizations. We call our tech champs community. And she really works with the chair of that V team to drive the agenda. And so what we've done is we've effectively, we're, we're, we're running a, a, I shouldn't say this, it's, it's a little bit of a CIA model. And as much as we're developing local assets, right? So mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're basically finding someone in each of the, the individual tribes and asking them to be an ambassador who, you know, an ambassador, I mean that in the true words, and as much as it goes both ways, right? So we're bringing content information messaging to them about, hey, here's how we can help you. Here's the bigger picture and the bigger frame. But also we want that information of like, what are the local needs? Like, what is the, what are the strategic goals that come back? And so these are some of the pieces that we're using to try to really help the entire 1600 person organization see themselves as individuals in our journey. And I think it, again, it rips, rips off all, all you, the things you've been doing. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the ambassadors because I think it's so critical to have that local contact point that's got the human connection, who's a trusted advisor or a trusted source. It's understanding the network within an organization and who are those people that you can turn into champions 
that other people will go to and rely on and go, yeah, well, I know what Jason says. Is that really right? Oh well, yeah, you you could trust what the dude's saying because it's I've I've experienced it. Okay, I'm with you. I well, think people over over overlook that that systems analysis of social networks that is so important in a change process. You're right, but the truth is, people should be skeptical of me, and that's appropriate. Uh, like <laughs> you, they, you know, I I am not credible, and so that is why it's important, to, as you said, have somebody local <laughs> that you can trust. Well, you don't have to worry about lawyers being skeptical. Uh, as you know, they're, they're, we're trained that way. Uh, we, we look forward by looking backwards, right? And if, it's, if you're not building on success, if you're not building on something where you can say, this has worked in the past and we're extending it, they don't respond well to revolution. But if you can show you're, you're evolving off of success, you're reducing the risk factors for them. That is true. However, you can take advantage of some of the other traits that they have. Specifically, so I think you're right that that lawyers are specifically skeptical of speculative investment, right? Like they really love sure things. They do not. It's like, well, is this going to work? Well, like, well, you know, fifty percent. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. But what they also don't like is being left behind and and being seen as irrelevant. Yes. And so it's. I'm not a big fan of inspiring people with anxiety. However. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm not, you know, look, we work with what we've got. And so one of the things that we, we try to do with our storytelling is to normalize certain behaviors. So to make people feel like, oh, well, if you're, if you're not part of the, the, where the tribe is going, that has risk attached to, because what we don't want people to feel is that inaction is not a choice, right? Because when when you decide not to move with the tribe, you are making a choice and that has consequences. And I don't think that we do people a service by pretending it's the other thing. You're absolutely right. They need to understand that stasis is not an option. It is. I mean, and again, like the thing that's driving us is as much as I look, I, I delight in what we do, but it comes from a business imperative. We are trying to build capabilities that will make us suited to serve Microsoft in the future, understanding that. So one of the things that I think attorneys really struggle with is you cannot bring capabilities online instantaneously. If you are leading an organization, you can't buy your way into certain know-how. You just can't. Like it's not like a thing you can go pick up off the shelf. It is a you know process of discovery and struggle and getting stuff wrong that ultimately imbues your organization with capability, which as weird as it sounds, I would think attorneys better than most should really understand because that's often how you develop a practice. Like, look, there's the stuff that's in the regs, there's the things that are in civil procedure and so forth, but how you actually navigate the system involves a lot of off book kind of things that you learn and building, you know, the capability to scale your organization through investments that that transform how you do your work. That's not something you can just write a check on and have it show up on your shores the next day. That is an investment effort that, you know, it takes time. And I worry that people think like, oh, I'll just wait until, you know, the organization that I regard as my peer evidences the traits and then I'll go find money and I'll write a check and we'll get there. And the problem is the way things are going with platforms and data, when you start seeing somebody else's taillights, they are accelerating away from you. 
And so at that point, it's really hard to catch up. And I worry that people don't really understand some of the competition dynamics that are to come, but I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Well, Jason, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how fascinating this conversation has been for me. You guys are doing just some fabulously cool stuff. And I, I love the way you guys think about the change imperative and how you approach the market. It's been really fascinating for me. So thank you for making the time to chat with me. It's my absolute pleasure. And if you enjoy what we're up to, I'm glad to hear that because it came from you. Well, thank you very much. You're very kind. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.